The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tivoldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. In 2009, the wellness community joined forces with Gilda's Club to become the Cancer Support Community, the largest provider of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Our show today is sponsored in part by Lilly Oncology and AstraZeneca. We hear it all the time, speculation that doctors, nurses, first responders, social workers, and other professionals uh, in social service must certainly be desensitized to death. They're used to losing their patients, so they set aside their personal emotions and remain unaffected by these tragedies. However, that is actually not true at all. Occupations that deal with death on a regular and continuous basis experience what is called professional grief. And left overlooked, this overload of grief can have negative effects on people who work in these professions. So we're going we're gonna to dig into this topic today. And joining me to talk more about professional grief and how to better understand it and cope with it is Justin Short. Justin is a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in counseling individuals and families dealing with cancer and chronic diseases and other health concerns. For nearly four years, Justin served as the program director at our cancer support community in Montana, His work there increased his passion for providing psychosocial care to those dealing with cancer, chronic illness, and other coexisting conditions. Justin currently splits his time as a private practice therapist at Spring Integrative Health in Bozeman, Montana, as well as a telehealth counselor for the Cancer Support Community's Cancer Support Helpline. Justin has a wealth of experience working within and navigating the traditional medical model in hospitals, research institutions, and community-based health clinics. He also has experience working with integrative health practitioners who deliver complementary treatment modalities. Justin has significant experience assisting patients and their caregivers through the healthcare system while reducing psychosocial distress. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thank you, Kim. It's great to be here. Great. Let's let's get started, Justin. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got started in your social work career? Absolutely. Um, I had a rather unorthodox uh, upbringing. Uh, In the early 80s, my parents decided to move from Mississippi to Georgia and actually work with the homeless population in Atlanta, where I grew up. And uh, over the course of about 11 years, I lived with over 200 different formerly homeless folks and um, activists and volunteers who would work in various nonprofits around the city and really got to see firsthand uh, what social work was all about. 
neither my father nor my mother were social workers, but they were, my mother was a community uh, health nurse, and my father was a Baptist minister from the early 60s who decided that he was way too liberal to be uh, combined to a, a traditional congregation, so they wanted to work with the homeless population. And really, as a little kid, I, I got to see the power of connecting with people one-on-one and also from a systems perspective where people fall through the cracks. And that's what led me to go to uh, social work school and public health school. Um, after I graduated from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, I went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill for my dual master's degree. And then, and then where did that lead you, Justin? So that then led me, I kind of bounced around the East Coast a little bit. Um, I have worked in hospice. I have also worked at a, at a major university teaching hospital in the neurology and neurosurgery floor. Um, I also worked at a social health organization. It's actually called the American Social Health uh, Association, and I did uh, uh, early back then in the 2000s, early 2000s, I, did, I managed a research grant on how to best use the Internet to help teach teens about STI prevention. Um, and basically, I, that, I, I worked from essentially 2000 to about 2007 when my wife and I moved up to Montana from Atlanta and then uh, spent some time doing some different type of work between 2007 and 2011. And in 2011, I became the program director at Cancer Support Community uh, here in Bozeman, Montana. And that's what really uh, got me interested in oncology and working with those who are dealing with chronic illness. Mm. Justin, I know before we really dive into this uh, professional grief topic, I know one of the things that you do is that uh, you take uh, groups of men on, on uh, men who are dealing with illness, cancer, on river rafting trips and use that as an opportunity for, uh, for support, for connection, for intervention. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how that works? Absolutely. I would love to. Um, so the name of the nonprofit is Real Recovery, and real is spelled like a fishing reel, R-E-E-L, and they offer fly fishing retreats for men with cancer. Uh, there's a host of other organizations that provide retreats for women, but this is one of the few that actually provided just for men with cancer. And uh, I recently was asked to be on their board of directors, and so I was so honored to, uh, to take a position with them. But really what my work is, I'm a facilitator. So... They fly me around the country seasonally from about May to November, and I join up to 14 men in a group. So these men come together, and essentially it's an opportunity to create fellowship and camaraderie and to be able to tell their stories and connect with other men, which historically, at least in my work, it's been really hard to get men together. And so basically these fly fishing retreats happen all over the country and in New Zealand, and my job is a facilitator, and I basically take these men through what we call courageous conversations, where we pose a question to them, which can be a bit hard to answer, but it creates such a rich environment for these men to connect with each other. And the healing art of fly fishing, I personally can attest to. And so it's really a wonderful opportunity for these men, and it's open to anyone. Anyone can attend. They can only come once, though, in their life. Um, so it's a pretty special, special event. Oh, that's that's uh, terrific. I just wanted to give our listeners a sense of some of the work that you're uh, doing there in Montana and around uh, the country and around the world. That's so exciting. Um, Justin, working in hospice and other uh, high-loss environments, has there ever been a time when you felt you were experiencing too much grief? Have you ever had sort of an aha moment when you realized that you needed to do something differently in order to better cope with your own feelings? 
I, I have had actually uh, several aha moments. The very first one came when I was working at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta um, on the neurology neurosurgery ward, and uh, I was with my first patient who actually took her last breath in my presence, and I was actually stroking her hand with her family around the, around the bed. And, uh, and I didn't realize, but in that moment, all the other previous deaths of patients and clients I had had that maybe I hadn't actually been there right when they took their last breath, it all came in a huge flood of emotion for me. And I thought, well, this might be kind of normal. So, hope, you know, it'll probably go, in a way in a, go away in a day or two, but it actually didn't. It lingered for quite a while, and I think what had, been, what had happened was I had been stuffing these feelings and had not truly processed them because the pace of the work um, was such that you didn't really have time to process one death and then, you know, kind of systematically move on to the next. Um, people yeah. were dying every single week, and so it was, it was tough. That was probably my first real moment. Yeah, when you just you, you realized, gosh, I've got to find a better way to cope with this and to, to do some self-care here. Is that right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's um, exactly. So in your education to become a social worker, studying for your, studying for your, uh, uh, for your social work uh, degree, Justin, was there any training on how to cope with the loss of patients? I mean, is this something that's addressed in, in your training? You know, it might be addressed now, but when I was in school from 98 to 2000, we didn't have a single class on learning how to deal with grief. Uh, we learned a lot about how to pay attention to maybe what our own emotional triggers are and how that might affect the relationship with the population we were working with, but there was nothing about how to deal with grief and loss at all. There might be today, but when I was in school, there most certainly wasn't. So talk a little bit about that piece that you did mention, um, dealing with the emotional triggers. What, what, is that? what does that mean? Well, it's, it's when, I think the best way I can describe it in layman's terms is when we meet a client or a patient or a family that reminds us of, of a touch point we've had with, with maybe a family member or a good friend, and they, they bring up issues that we've already experienced before, but maybe they haven't been fully resolved. And so in that moment, you may be less helpful to your client if if sort of past issues you haven't dealt with are coming to the surface and preventing mm. you from being as, as unbiased as possible. So that's kind of what triggers mean to me and what they feel like. Got it. Got it. Um, Justin, we've, we're starting to come to the end of our first segment. We've got a couple minutes until our, uh, uh, until our first break here. But I, I want to just, again, explore a little bit more these, these sort of aha moments and really how did you become interested in helping others in your field to better understand professional grief. Kind of, you know, talk us through that. And again, talk us through some of your own experiences and observations in dealing with that loss and, and thinking, gosh, this has got to be an issue that needs to be better addressed by the, the field of oncology social work. Sure. Thank you. Um, well, the, the first real experience I think I had processing grief in a group was when I worked for Child Protective Services in Fairfax, Virginia in the early 2000s. Um, that was definitely a high loss or a high grief environment, even though much of our population did not actually die. There was lots of loss. There was lots of trauma. And actually, Fairfax County government put together a, a, a weekly support group for all the social workers to attend and help process their mm -hmm. feelings. And I think it was in that moment I realized the power of the group and the power of being able to express and actually cry in front of your colleagues. And to realize that that's actually really, it's needed. It's a necessary 
kind of intervention that social workers, uh, psychologists, and other counselors need to have if they don't want to burn out and they want to continue to work in this field. Um, so whether uh, you know, you're doing child protective services or you're working at a, a small local nonprofit, um, you know, working with folks with cancer or, or any other capacity, if you, if you have if there is loss in your work on a fairly regular basis, I think it's imperative that there be a, some sort of a system involved or a system created to help the professional caregivers, which we're often seen as, as one of a host of caregivers that our patients have, um, that we have a place that we can process those emotions and try to stay as fresh for the next client we have you know, coming down the pike. Um, because the work in the pace is, is at such a speed, you have to be able to, to maintain somewhat of a, home, a bit of a homeostasis to move forward and yes. to be the most helpful you can be. Yes, yeah, de- no, de- definitely. I, I, uh, I hear what you're saying. Um, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're uh, talking to, uh, to Justin Short, one of our social workers who works with the cancer support community um, and actually talks to patients every day. Uh, on our helpline. We're talking about understanding professional grief. I just want to mention the phone number for our helpline. If you're someone dealing with cancer, the loved one of someone dealing with cancer, you want to talk to one of our counselors today, you can call us at 888-793-9355. We have a great team of licensed uh, professionals on the helpline. Uh, You can call right now and chat with one of them, 888-793-9355. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We've got more to cover today. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. 
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. The show is sponsored in part today by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Insight Corporation. Today we are talking about professional grief with licensed clinical social worker Justin Short, one of our cancer support community helpline counselors who has devoted quite a bit of his time to helping others in social service professions better understand their own grief. So uh, we may have some folks, Justin, just joining us. So let's, you know, get back to some of these terms here. Tell us a little bit more about the term professional grief. Um, wh- what does it mean? And in what ways is this different from, let's say, personal grief, such as the grief someone feels during the loss of a family member or a close friend? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the, the person that I actually got this term from is Dr. Alan Wolfelt. This is not an original Justin Short term. Um, he is a bit of a pioneer in the field of grief and loss. Um, so, so basically what it is, the grief and the loss itself, and then the accompanying bereavement, largely feels the same initially as personal grief. Where I think it, it, it starts to, to divert is how we're allowed or not allowed to express our grief in the workplace. Also, I think how patients will often look to us as people that have to have all the answers and we have to always have our composure, keep our composure, and, uh, and sort of be a pillar of strength. So there's automatically uh, a resistance, I think, for uh, social workers and counselors to be able to express their grief. And then also just the cumulative nature of it. As I was saying in the earlier segment, uh, much of the work happens at such a pace that you just don't have time to process your grief between, you know, one case and another. And really, I think it's a cumulative buildup of grief that can lead to burnout and and lead to some undesirable uh, behavior, to be honest with you. So as a, as a professional who deals with, with, with loss qu- quite a bit, is it okay for professionals to feel grief when they lose a patient? Or are they supposed to be strong? Are they supposed to sort of compartmentalize that, that grief? I mean, are there certain acceptable behaviors or training or a certain way that that's acceptable versus not? You know, I would, so the short answer is yes, it is acceptable. And I hope that more mental health professionals are able to embrace this fact that expressing their grief is going to be better for them as practitioners in a long run. But having said that, context is everything. Um, there are times when it may not be appropriate for you to cry with your client or cry with your family or to show them that you're feeling deep sadness. Um, but then there's other times when it's totally appropriate. And so, you know, the clinician is, is going to ha- hopefully have their, their finger on the pulse of, like, when it's appropriate to express the grief outwardly and with their client versus maybe when they need to just meet with their support group of colleagues and kind of get back to what happened previously in the week or in the month so that they can continue to process it. But I actually think that uh, resisting the grief reaction causes more issues than embracing it. Um, but it's, it's kind of counterintuitive. I mean, as, as mental health professionals, we, we often are supposed to, to create this image that we have, we have all the answers and that, uh, you know, people come to us broken and they want to be fixed. 
And so it's hard for us to show that maybe we're broken at times, you know, temporarily broken. And so um, the short answer, though, is yes. I do think it's imperative that, that mental health professionals learn how to express their grief instead of bottling it up. So, Justin, what happens if a professional does not uh, address their, their feelings of grief or does not have a way to sort of process that themselves? Sort of, you know, what, what, what's the risk? What's that road look like? Well, I, I can speak from personal experience on this. Um, um, there was a period of time when I didn't realize the grief was, was really uh, was mounting up to a point where it was becoming problematic. And I have since heard from other colleagues of mine that they've experienced the same thing. But you can just uh, sort of carry with you to work every day a sense of edginess. Uh, maybe you seem a little less open, a little less flexible, uh, a little less present with your clients that you're working with. Uh, little things can set you off, uh, you know, whether it's, I mean, sitting in traffic, I think, sets everybody off. But, I mean, we all have our own gauge of, <laughs> you know, kind of what sets us off past kind of a normal point of frustration. But for me, it was little things in my life that started to um, evoke sort of an anger type emotion, and a frustration. And what I realized later after seeking my own therapy, which I hope most counselors actually engage in regular therapy, is <clears throat> I was never really given a chance or I didn't think it was okay to, to, to cry and to grieve. And I actually created a ritual um, that I do when certain really close clients of mine either pass away or I sense loss for another reason. And for me, the ritual is really important. It helps keep me grounded. And it helps keep me less emotionally reactive in a negative way. So I think some of those typical signs and symptoms are frustration, maybe not being able to go to sleep very well, overeating, undereating, maybe you stop exercising or socially connecting with other people like you used to, and just being a little bit more prone to being easily frustrated. Um, I've, To be honest with you, I've experienced probably every single one of those at one point. So, Justin, is there a, a, a risk that if you don't address it as a professional, if you don't process your own grief, if you don't find those tools and those channels that you're describing, that somebody might really get to the point where they're experiencing burnout? You know, are, are there classic signs to look for um, related to burnout? And do you see folks who just can't deal with it, can't process it, who just walk away and say, look, this is too much, i got to do something else? You know, I, I have run into colleagues that have not been able to appropriately process their grief. You know, I, in my opinion, it's something you really have to practice. It doesn't, it's not really normal for mental health professionals to, to find an appropriate way to grieve. Uh, but if you, if you can join a, a, uh, like a group supervision of other counselors that you meet with on a regular basis, which is what I do, actually I have several different groups that I meet with, and we sort of model for each other what's appropriate. And, and you check in with your colleagues to see what you know, what might be appropriate in the therapy room with a client to express and what not to express. Those checks and balances are really important. But for me, when I have experienced burnout before, um, it is lack of sleep. It might be having some some recurring nightmares or bad dreams about um, the situation uh, that is creating the grief reaction. And, and I think just um, a level of, of intolerance and not being able to truly open up your heart to your clients like you used to. You, you feel a sense of desensitization because you want to protect yourself from, those, from those, those feelings that lead to suffering and pain. 
And I think, I think the further we move away from our clients and the more inaccessible we become, then that is dangerous for us to remain in that profession without any help. Um, because ultimately it's about helping the people we serve, and if that in any way, shape, or form hinders our ability to do that, it must be addressed, in my opinion. So, Justin, you, you talked about, you know, appropriate behavior or appropriate response with a client or a patient versus, a, you know, an, an inappropriate response. Maybe you can drill, drill down on that uh, a little bit and just give us maybe a, a better sense of things or an example. I mean, let's say, for example, I'm a patient and I come to you and I say, you know what, I got bad news today. My doctor says there's no more treatment options for me. Um, there's nothing else for me. I'm going to have to end treatment and I'm going to have to move to hospice care. And, you know, this pretty much means I'm moving to the end of my life. And your patient is very emotional, obviously, about that and, and, um, and, and sad and maybe overwhelmed by that emotion. What's a, an appropriate response versus an inappropriate response, let's say, with that patient? So I think, it, I, I think the best way to answer that is all, it all depends on what type of rapport you've built in the very beginning. But assuming that you have, you have great rapport and trust with your client, um, I have found myself tearing up multiple times with clients because the news is sad, and I want to be able to show them that I'm, that I'm deeply hurt and pained by the information they just received. And I'm a fellow traveler in this world. Um, fellow traveler is not actually a term that I came up with. Um, uh, it can't, it's, it's an author that I can share with you maybe later, but, you know, as therapists, I mean, we're human beings, too, and we have our own level of suffering and pain in this world. And to be able to, to relate to our clients on a level by showing some tears and saying, I am so sorry that this has happened, and I feel this loss, too, and I want to still be here for you, um, I believe that's totally appropriate. You might have some therapists, social workers, that, that say, you know, I really try never to cry in front of a client. I... If that works for them, I think that's great. For me, I have found that there, it's a delicate balance of when you, ex, when you show that and when you don't. But when I have chosen to show that with a client, it has actually enriched our relationship much deeper um, in a much more meaningful way, and I don't feel that it has created some, some weird boundaries between the two of us or that I crossed some boundary that I shouldn't have crossed. The context is everything. It, it, it depends on the situation. But I think in that moment... The therapist should be able to react in a way that shows them that they, you know, they're, they're truly empathetic. They feel the pain, and, they, and that resonates with them. Yeah, I, no, I, think you're making, uh, yeah, I think you're making some good points, and I think that idea that you're describing this as a delicate, uh, a, you know, a delicate balance and really in some ways a real challenge to keep yourself inside of that space of sort of appropriate behavior, appropriate you know, response versus, you know, cr- you know, crossing a line is, um, you know, I think it's an important point uh, to make. And I might in the next segment want to even explore that um, uh, a, a little bit more. Um, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking about understanding uh, professional grief and really the grief that uh, the doctors, nurses, first responders, social workers, other professionals in social service uh, uh, might really experience if they're exposed quite a bit to death and to uh, and, and to loss and to suffering. Um, and so we're really talking today with Justin Short about how do you understand professional grief, how do you process professional grief, um, 
and uh, and really manage through that for for those in our in our world. And we have 350 licensed mental health professionals in our network at the cancer support community, and we pay quite a bit of attention to making sure that they have the the, the colleagues and the tools and the resources that they need to process their uh, their professional uh, their professional grief. So we are going to take a quick break here. We have a lot more to talk about with Justin and understanding professional grief, learning more about how to work through it, some of the tools and resources that are available there. We're going to take a quick break. I'm Kim Tibaldo. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We will be right back. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, sponsored in part by Taiho Oncology, Inc. and Celgene Corporation. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo, and today we are joined by Justin Short, licensed clinical social worker to talk about professional grief. I want to go back, just touch for a minute on the conversation, Justin, we were having in the last segment to talk about uh, uh, sort of appropriate versus inappropriate response, um, you know, in a session with a patient. Um, You know, I I just, I just want to go back to this idea that, um, you know, how important is it for these professionals to be addressing some of the issues and challenges in their own life in order to be 
in a good place and ready to be helping patients and clients deal with some of the challenges that they're, you know, that they're facing. Is that something important to think about? Does that really guide how good a therapist is or, or, you know, again, guide whether their response, you know, is, is appropriate in this context if they're dealing with a lot of challenging things in their own personal life? Uh, absolutely. I think one of the, one of the, the most important roles or actually activities that a, that a therapist can engage in, and actually they should engage in this in their entire life and never really uh, hit the pause button, is understanding sort of how they're best able to relate to their client, knowing that we all have our own emotional baggage, and being able to really kind of discern um, if the client is creating a response in us that is ultimately not helpful for them. And if it's not helpful for them, because maybe they remind us of someone that is dear to us in our own family that, is, that has died, um, we have to be aware of that. And, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of sort of uh, therapists in the last sort of dozen years or so are, are saying, you know, you should be able to have that conversation in therapy, in the here and now, with the client about what's happening. Because the, the session itself can be so incredibly valuable if these issues that come up are dealt with immediately. And I have found, I mean, and I have so much more work to do in this field. I, I hope to never call myself an expert really in anything in mental health because I always want to learn and grow. But I have found that the times that a client has brought forth a feeling in me that was really uncomfortable and I'm able to identify that that is directly related to maybe like an experience I had with my dad at one point or an experience I had with you know, my mom or someone else important in my life, and it feels uncomfortable, um, it's, it's very important that in that moment I try to explain to the client, you know, assuming that there's an appropriate time to do that, that maybe why my facial expression was the way it was is because this, you know, a certain emotion was brought up. Um, there are some therapists that may sort of shy away from doing that, and they may process that later, but... I also think part of the role of the therapist is to model the behavior that we want to see from our clients. And if we are able to show a level of vulnerability in our session and say, you know, that kind of triggered me and let's talk about that, to me there's, there, there, there cannot be a more genuine sort of connection with a client than that. And, and so I, I think it's very important that clinicians continually try to assess and investigate um, their triggers, and whether or not it's ultimately helpful for them to discuss it or hurtful. Um, that's the ultimate question. Uh, we, we, we create a very protective, safe place for our clients, and we never want to jeopardize that. So in that context, Justin, is it appropriate for a therapist to say to a client, I don't think this is working, I don't think we're a good fit for one another, let me get you to somebody else where I think you, you know, there might be a better fit for the therapist to, to say that to the client and obviously the reverse for the client to say that to a therapist. I don't think what I'm getting what I need here. I, I think I need to see someone else, try someone else. You know, how does that conversation happen? Well, that's a difficult conversation for sure, but it's absolutely appropriate. Um, again, I have, I have learned to, to structure my practice based on a lot of previous teachers and current teachers that I have. So this is not original stuff, but in my, in my uh, consultation with clients, I do a 15-minute meet and greet before, before we move forward with, with engaging with each other as, client, patient, I mean, as a clinician-client or having them go elsewhere. I say, you know, come in 
It's a time that you can, for the lack of a better word, interview me. It's a time that I can see what's happening in your life. And if I'm a great fit, we can move forward. And if you feel the same, we can move forward. If maybe we're not a great fit or you're looking for a therapist that has expertise in a certain area that I don't, then there's no strings attached. No money's been exchanged. No paperwork has been filled out. And I will do my best to uh, refer you to two or three other therapists in town that I, that I highly regard. Um, so I think it's actually very important to set the stage in the beginning that if at any point the therapeutic relationship is not working, and it's, and it's not working like above and beyond normal challenges and friction that might occur, but like there's a pattern of it not working, then actually the therapist is, is ethically obligated to, to let the client know that, that maybe it's not working out and that they could be better served by another clinician. Uh, J- Justin, I want to move to, you know, I- I've heard this term, quote-unquote, bereavement overload. Can you tell us a little bit about that term? What is bereavement overload, and how can professionals who work in a high-loss setting avoid it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so, you know how I was referring to just the pace of our work sometimes? Um, especially if you're, if you're working in a place, let's say like hospice, where there are multiple losses hap- happening, you know, daily or weekly, and you're having to drive to two or three different homes a day and, you know, companion a family who has a loved one who's dying, and you are not allowed time really to grieve any of those individual deaths, that cumulative uh, grief at some point, uh, is going to lead to burnout. Now, it may not lead to burnout in everyone. Some of us have higher thresholds than others, and some of us have better support systems than others. But uh, bereavement overload is when you absolutely uh, have, a, have a, a, a list of stacked-up grief reaction that you have not fully processed. And that's something that clinicians need to be uh, keenly aware of, and their supervisors need to be aware of it. And hopefully... Wherever they work, there is some sort of an institutionalized process that, uh, where they can go and actually, you know, be able to kind of, quote-unquote, break down ourselves and process this stuff. I really don't like the term breakdown, but I think everybody knows what that means when you have a breakdown. Um, but uh, that, that's essentially what it is. And, and in my opinion, if that's not addressed, uh, you are going to be less and less accessible to the next client or patient that you have. And that ultimately is not good for them, and it's not good for you. And it's not good for our profession as a whole. I mean, our profession of mental health uh, professionals. It's, uh, so we, we really have to involve, I think, a level of self-care that, that I know a lot of folks that go into mental health, um, you know, we go in because we want to help other people, and often we neglect helping ourselves. I mean, that, that's a real thing. I've, I've seen it in practice. I mean, I've even experienced it myself. But if there's not a level of self, self-care to help deal with bereavement overload, um, it, it's, it's kind of a dangerous place to be in. It's a very uncomfortable place to be in. So, so then talk, Justin, about that balance, okay? So, so kind of an ideal balance to strive for when working with patients in that kind of, of a high loss, you know, environment. How do professionals stay engaged with their patients while at the same time sort of protecting themselves from the, you know, stress and the overload of that loss? Yeah. Um, wow. If I had the formula for the ideal balance, I would probably be a gazillionaire, and I, I wish I did. <laughs> um, 
I think it's a very personal, intuitive process, and I also think that if you have a good group of colleagues around you that support you, um, they can help sort of guide you through this process as well. But for me, um, some of the things that I try to pay attention to is how am I sleeping? Um, what, what am I like when I come home from work and my wife wants to tell me how her day was? Is my mind somewhere else? Am I not truly present with her? Am I not reciprocating in the conversation? Um, am I not exercising as much? Am I not meditating as much? Am I, um, you know, working, you know, even when I get home from work, am I continuing to work even longer um, on an issue for a client or a patient? And then, you know, those healthy boundaries that maybe I used to have are, are being eroded. Um, those are my own personal signs that I look for. Um, I think therapists must have boundaries. Um, we absolutely have to have boundaries. That's also a part of modeling appropriate behavior for our clients is what healthy boundaries look like. Um, so for me, I think it's, it's, it's if I feel like I'm not able to connect in a really meaningful, genuine, authentic way with my clients, and I know what that feels like when maybe on a particular day I'm kind of tired I'm, and I'm less present in the office with a client, if that becomes a pattern, then, then I need to do something about it. And that might mean that I need to, to take a break from my work. It might mean that I could take a road trip with my wife and dog and kind of get out of, of my community for a little bit. It might mean that I need to up my exercise or um, change my diet or go to acupuncture or whatever. And that's the part of the self-care that I think is really important for us therapists uh, to engage in. So, Justin, I've only got a, qu- a quick minute here um, until our... Uh, until our next break, but uh, you know, a lot of times we say in life you got to take the good with the bad. And so, does the you know do the positive experiences that your patients have, uh, good news, a personal victory, um, finding out that they're cancer free, um, does that help to balance out the grief and the loss? I mean, is it this idea of taking the good with the bad, and does that sort of lift you up and kind of help you get through the tough days? It totally lifts me up. Um, I, whenever a client is, a, is able to share with me that maybe they reached a milestone or they, or they have a really good scan from their last appointment or they met with their oncologist and said, you know, we can't detect any more cancer, I, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, I probably uh, express enthusiasm maybe, maybe more than I should. I don't know. Um, in that <laughs> moment, I am so very happy for them. Um, does it mean that the rough that the road ahead of them is still not really rough and bumpy? No, it does not mean that at all. And, you know, and I think you would know this really well too, Kim, is that in oncology, a lot of patients um, get the news that their cancer is, is not detectable anymore, only to find out that maybe six or eight months later it's back. And so in that moment, do I try to remind the client that maybe there's still some future bad news? Yeah. Absolutely not. I truly share in the yeah. joy, and, uh, and those lift me up for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I think all, all good points, uh, Justin. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking about understanding professional grief. We're going to take a quick break here. We've got more to talk about. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, 
how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand, choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you a breakaway from cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, sponsored in part today by EMD Serono and Takeda Oncology. We've been having a great discussion today about professional Grief, the emotional response felt by professionals who work in high loss settings. Let's continue with our guest, Justin Short. Um, let's go into some, uh, in our sort of closing few minutes together, Justin, some, some uh, tips uh, for, uh, for professionals who are dealing with grief and with loss. Um, are there some resources that you recommend uh, for professionals who are looking to learn more about professional grief and how to cope with it? I would say, are there resources and are there uh, tips, strategies uh, that you recommend as well? Absolutely. Um, some of, you know, there's a really great website. I had mentioned Dr. Alan Wolfelt before. He's a PhD. Uh, he, has a, he has an organization called the Center for Loss and Life Transition, which has wonderful articles uh, for both clients and patients, but also for, uh, you know, professional caregivers or people in the mental health uh, profession. So I really like his work. I'm also a huge fan of uh, Dr. Samit Kumar's book called Grieving Mindfully. He actually has a connection to one of our CSC affiliates down in Florida. Um, he, he really brings together some, some wonderful sort of uh, practical techniques and strategies that people can engage in, but it also comes from a little bit more of a Buddhist perspective, so there's a lot of meditation um, uh, practices in the book and things and, and things you can engage in and notice an immediate difference physiologically in your body when you're starting to feel anxious or particularly sad and uh, and I really like I really like those guys a lot um, and then also just 
surrounding yourself with people that make you feel good and lift you up and push you to be the best person you can be. And maybe that's family members, maybe it's friends, maybe it's other colleagues. Um, luckily for me, and I know I'm lucky in this, I actually have people in all three of those groups that I rely on. And, um, and, and I think for me, being on the helpline, I, uh, you know, we have supervision uh, once every other week, and that is crucial for us to get together and process information and how we're feeling. And then also I have my own group of uh, colleagues that I get together with. So the social connection piece is, is pretty big. And then I also think uh, maybe developing a ritual that you can go through to sort of uh, finalize or maybe close the chapter with a certain client or patient who, who has died. I mean, you're never going to forget them. They're going to live on forever in your memory and in your heart. But for me, I have certain rituals that I do that, that – allow me to kind of move on to the next client and to be as, as present as I can be with them. So for, for people who are sort of outside of the, you know, the quote-unquote helping professions that we've been talking about, Justin, is there anything you wish they knew about the way that grief affects professionals? Any myths that you would like to debunk or just a, you know, a, a, a clarification of, of uh, what the, the impact of the loss is on these professionals? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I've never really heard directly from a client um, that, they ha- that they have a certain myth about how mental health professionals deal with grief, but I can tell you that it, it seems like the sense they get is that, is that we're impenetrable and that grief doesn't really affect us like it affects them because we went to school and we have all these fancy degrees after our name, and surely we must have all the answers on how to deal with grief. And I would just like to, to go on the record and say we do not have all the answers. Hopefully we have answers that are going to work for you in your situation, but applying it to our own lives, sometimes we don't have the answers. And so we're on our own quest, and we have our own struggle in life dealing with, with loss. And so, you know, we do know what it feels like. Um, sometimes, you know, therapists might say, oh, I know how you feel, like in a therapy session, and a client might say, no, you don't. You have no idea how I feel. Um, without picking apart the words too much, I think sometimes that reaction to the therapist is they believe there's a disconnect between feeling that person's true pain and suffering, and clearly the clinician has never been at that level. Um, But that's not true. We all walk around with our own history and our own pain and suffering and our own loss. And so I I, I think, I don't know if it's really a myth, but I would say that... uh, you know, we, we struggle just as much as our clients do, and I think it's okay to acknowledge that, and I think it's actually really important to, to, to acknowledge it. Yeah, yeah, and I think really, yeah, that part to show, boy, I'm, you know, I'm human too. I've got my own, you know, issues, my own struggles in my own life, you know, sort, sort of uh, equalizes the field a little bit. Um, Justin, I know that you said that when you were in school studying to become a social worker, that there was not really a great curriculum um, around dealing with loss, dealing with grief, any kind of training and in coping strategies um, around that. So if we've got some uh, professionals today who are maybe new in the field of social work or others, um, you know, maybe new to the world of dealing with um, with some of the loss uh, and grief, just getting started in their, in their careers, um, what advice do you have uh, you know, for these new new folks who are, you, you know, really approaching some of these issues, what strategies, tactics, advice do you have for those who are listening today? You know, the first thing I would say is I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown, and I would say buy any of her books, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, yeah. 
I, I think embracing vulnerability is huge. Um, in our profession, we may, we may try to teach our clients that, but in so many ways, we don't embrace it ourselves. And I think it's critical that people in the mental health profession learn how to embrace their vulnerability and then actually practice, 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 sharing their thoughts and feelings in, in an appropriate way with colleagues and with other folks who can understand what it's like to be in the position we're in. And um, I think that's a great start. Um, you know, I, I think somebody in their mid-20s, maybe just graduating from graduate school and, and um, going into practice, uh, you know, maybe they're working with clients who are significantly older than them. They're going to not feel very comfortable showing vulnerability, and I get that because maybe of a, a you know, generational gap or whatever. But basically, if you, if you show up and you try to be as authentic and as real as you can, and, and you show vulnerability in a contextually appropriate way, I just don't think you can go wrong. And I think, I think over time, people will gravitate to you and you will rise to the top, you know, as one of the best clinicians in your town. I truly believe that. Well, I think that's, um, I think that's great advice, Justin. Uh, this has really been a terrific conversation today about professional grief and some really good advice and, and tips for professionals who are, uh, uh, maybe confronting some of these issues that there really is a network out there. And uh, Justin mentioned that um, he helps to staff our cancer support community helpline. We have a great team of counselors who do staff that um, that helpline. And I just want to remind our listeners that that cancer support helpline is available to anyone who's touched by cancer anywhere at any time. Uh, the phone number for that helpline is 888 uh, you can call today. All the services on the helpline are free. You can speak to uh, Justin or one of our other terrific counselors on the helpline if you really just need to, to chat with someone about your own cancer experience or that of a loved one. You're looking for information, resources, help, referrals. Um, we're happy to help you with that. If you're just grabbing a pen, it's 888-793-9355. And I you know, want to give a, a great shout out to Justin and to all of our helpline counselors for the great job that they do in, in serving patients and families uh, on a daily basis. If you're looking for other services uh, at the Cancer Support Community, visit us at uh, www.cancersupportcommunity.org to learn about uh, the locations of our 47 affiliates. We've got a lot of great educational materials uh, on the website available to you uh, free of charge. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. It's been uh, a pleasure being with you today, and thank you to Justin for being our guest and talking about professional grief. Um, Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.